0: Hello and welcome to another episode of my podcast The Global Agora. My name is Andrey Matyshak and I work as the deputy head of foreign desk in Slovak Davy Pravda, which by the way means truth and is not Russian Pravda. Mick Ryan is a military strategist and retired Australian army major general. He believes that the slow delivery of the Western weapon systems to Ukraine is one of the reasons why the Russians were able to build strong defensive lines. We discussed the successes and failures of Ukraine's counteroffensive, offensive, why he thinks that the Commander-in-Chief of Armed Forces of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky injected a dose of reality into the conversation about the war, and also what he got wrong about Russia. Listen to our conversation. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on coffee. For the link, see also the description of this episode. And now, up to the new debate. For the last week or so, there have been many debates about what you described in your substantive article as perhaps the best-informed analysis of the war. Of course, I am talking about the interview and the piece by Commander-in-Chief of the Armed Forces of Ukraine Volodymyr Zelensky in The Economist. How do you assess Zelensky's words? There was a focus on the word stalemate and on the possible rift between Zaluzhny and the Ukrainian president, Volodymyr Zelensky.
1: Yeah, I, it, there's a whole lot to this, isn't there? And I think, firstly, the use of the word stalemate, I think it's been shallowly interpreted by many. What Zaluzhny said, if you read the interview, its short piece, as well as the nine-page paper that's posted on The Economist, his words were trending towards parity and stalemate, not at these points. That was his diagnosis for where the war is at the moment. You know, after four to five months of pretty tough fighting in the Ukrainian offensives, and before that, four to five months of pretty tough fighting defending against Russia's eastern offensives, which we began when Grasimov took over. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that things are starting to ease off a bit. Solutiony's diagnosis, I think, is very important for several reasons. I think it injects a dose of reality that's very important. It injects an understanding of how the Russians are adapting and changing. And I think it gives a good prognosis for how the Commander-in-Chief thinks that the best way to support Ukraine is going into 2024 and beyond. So, So for all those reasons, I think It's a very important document. Now, the timing is a very different issue. I think the timing probably wasn't very good. The Time article with President Zelensky had just come out. It wasn't a great article. And I think this coming on top of it probably resulted in some uncomfortable conversations between the Commander-in-Chief and the President's officers. But I think the Ukrainians, too, know that they have bigger problems than two articles coming out at uncomfortable
0: times. Yeah, we probably need a healthy dose of reality. So from your perspective, what has the Ukrainian counteroffensive achieved so far?
1: When you look at the southern Ukrainian offensive, you need to view it against all the other campaigns the Ukrainians are running. They're running a southern offensive, they're running an eastern offensive around Bakhmut, They're running a defensive campaign in the Northeast, so they're running three major ground campaigns concurrently. They're also running a major strike campaign against Crimea, a strategic strike campaign against Russia, a strategic influence campaign, and a a modernization campaign. If you have a look at all those in totality, Ukraine is in a better position now than it was last year. But if you have a look at those campaigns individually, the one in the south clearly has not achieved what anyone hoped it would. Even the Ukrainians had hoped that they would at least be in Tokmak by now, at least. And that hasn't occurred. Can't sugarcate the fact that the southern offensive has not been as successful as anyone hoped. And Zeluzhny, I think, was very open about that. You know, his article basically was part of him accepting the blame for that, thought it was the commander's, it wasn't, and he said, hey, it's it's just the situation, and we probably overestimated our ability in that situation on our southern offensive.
0: General Zaluzhny also said that his assumption was that it was possible to stop Russia by bleeding its troops, and I would add, many people thought the same, but as Zaluzhny admitted, and I will quote him, that was my mistake. Russia has lost at least 150,000 dead. In any other country, such casualties would have stopped the war. So my question is, looking back, and maybe it's also a problem of the media with all the stories about the incompetence of Russia and their low morale, but looking back, did we underestimate Russia's willingness to fight?
1: Yeah, I think we've underestimated Russian will. Going back to Zaluzhny's assumption that killing 150,000 Russian soldiers would cause them to withdraw, that wasn't a bad assumption. I mean, Zaluzhny was brought up in the Russian system. He knows the Russians. As a young man, he would have seen them coming out of Afghanistan, and they left Afghanistan after losing 15,000 soldiers. So the fact that he made an assumption that 150,000 would probably force them to reconsider, that wasn't a bad assumption. It's just worked out that the assumption was wrong at the end of the day, unfortunately. And he accepted that. He said, I got that wrong. And actually, that's really good to see a senior leader exercising that kind of self-criticism and that level of self-awareness. We're certainly not seeing it from Gerasimov or any other Russian leader. And I think it says something healthy about the senior leadership of at least some of the Ukrainians, that they're willing to engage in deep thinking about what the actual situation is rather than what they hope
0: the situation might be. So let's look at the actual situation and what we can expect in the short term in the next few months as winter is coming. As you said, Ukraine is doing a lot of things. So what we can expect on the southern front regarding Crimea, but also regarding Ukraine's defensive efforts?
1: Well, winter doesn't stop things, but it certainly makes things more difficult. I think what you'll see in the south and the east for the Ukrainians, they'll be and I'll have a mindset, well, if we can't advance, we need to make sure the Russians can't concentrate for offensive. So we need to be fighting them in multiple locations. I think, too, that this crossing of the Dnipro River is very interesting. I mean, that could be some unexpected fruit. So uh, the Ukrainians need to ensure the Russians can't reinforce Kherson, which means they need to keep trying to at least advance, you know, Robertine, the Fenran, uh, Bakhmut and these kind of places. Certainly in the short term into winter, you're going to see that occurring. I think you'll see a step up in a strategic strike campaign. Certainly the Russians appear to have been conserving missiles in the last couple of months for what we probably expect is a winter campaign to hit Ukrainian infrastructure. Unlike last year, Ukraine actually has the ability to hit back. They've already telegraphed that to the Russians. If you take out one of our pale stations, we're going to do the same to you. So it'll be a different kind of strategic strike campaign this winter, that I think the Ukrainians will step up both in Russia and Crimea. And then I think their strategic influence campaign, they're really going to have to rethink their messaging and how they get cut through when Israel-Gaza is a major distraction for the US administration before it even starts thinking about the coming presidential campaign, which is another major distraction for them. So you know, the Ukrainians have all these other campaigns. They'll just be waiting them differently
0: over the coming months, I think, and, and into next year. Would you have some advice for the Ukrainians how to run the strategic campaign?
1: Well, I think they've got to be able to deny Russia gains whilst preserving their own combat power, both people and equipment, into next year. And at the same time, building the capacity of their battalions and brigades, I think, you know, combined arms at above company level has been problematic at times. But I also think standardisation of equipment and munitions is going to be a very major effort. It's going to take years to achieve it, but they've got to move towards it because, you know, the world's moving out of 122, 152mm ammunition. So they need to standardise around NATO systems. They have a menagerie of artillery, they're going to have to make decisions on standardizing that at some point in time. That's a very big thing, but you know, there's no better time than the present to start that, and that will be a major campaign of transformation over the next couple
0: of years. A few days ago in Brussels, I talked to a group of young Ukrainian journalists. One of their questions was why Ukraine didn't build better defenses similar to what Russia did. They feel that not only the progress of Ukrainian forces is slow, But Ukraine's soldiers are also under pressure on some part of the front, which is real. Did Ukraine focus too much on the offensive and forget about solid defensive lines? No, I I think that
1: isn't quite accurate. But if you have a look around Avdivka at the moment, one of the reasons Ukrainians have been able to hold on and been able to hold on there since 2014 is because they do have these very well-developed defensive lines, and they have them in other areas as well. I mean, we shouldn't forget the Ukrainians have been doing defensive operations in the Donbass for eight years. There's been trench warfare over that entire period. It's not new over the last 12 months. And the Ukrainians, besides that, were very, very good at mobile defensive operations in the north and in the south and in the east as well. So, Just because they haven't built what the Russians have got doesn't mean they're no good at defensive operations, indeed. You know, if you have a look at what's happened over the last period since February 2022, the Ukrainians have taken on a country that's three times their population, 10 times richer, with a military that's five to six times bigger, and fought them to a standstill. That says to me, actually, Ukraine's pretty good at defensive operations.
0: My next question would probably require a separate interview. But in general... How much do the Western weapon systems work when they face Russians? Any, at least, preliminary lessons? Well, they work really well.
1: You know, I, I've just come back from a trip to Kyiv and I spoke to quite a few senior people. The first big transformation was just the transition to 155 millimeter guns. As one Ukrainian general said to me, you know, with Russian 152 millimeter guns, each target required nine rounds. With NATO one five five, that's three to five rounds. Well, that's a big disparity just in ammunition usage and in precision there. And then that's that's not with, you know, precision munitions. That's just normal one It's Just the nature of how those guns are, are built and designed gives them a step up. You know, some of the anti-tank weapons, both the Ukrainian ones as well as the Western ones have been extraordinarily effective. We don't really know about tanks yet. I mean, the Ukrainians still have only received one to 200 Western tanks. I'm not sure all of them have even seen action. They've probably received 500 Russian tanks and and 1,000 T-72s from various donors. And what they've shown is whilst T-72s may not be the most technologically advanced, if you use them right tactically, with the right tactics and well-trained crews, they can be very, very effective indeed. I think the figure I was quoted by the procurements people there is that 40% of Ukrainian material and munitions is donated and the other 60% is existing Soviet-era stuff or material they buy on the world market. So Western and NATO equipment is by no means in the majority yet and won't be for some time. But it has provided Ukraine with a very, very critical edge. And we just need to keep working with them to build their stocks because the stocks of Soviet-era munitions are rapidly diminishing.
0: We hear a lot of criticism from Kiev, but also from many experts, that on the one hand, the West is really trying to help Ukraine, but on the other hand, the weapon deliveries are slow, and Ukrainians are not receiving everything they need. We can talk about jets, but also about other systems. Do you agree with this criticism that the West is too slow? Because perhaps... If it wouldn't, the situation on the battlefield would be at least partway different.
1: Yeah, I I think that's a very reasonable criticism. I think we've been slow. I think governments have been slow to make decisions about providing aid. Remember, you know, it was oh we're only going to provide javelin because we don't want to escalate with artillery. Oh, we're only going to provide towed artillery because we don't want to escalate with self-propelled. And you know, at each step, and I think what we have is Western governments who are used to the slower deliberate decision-making of the post 9-11 era and their systems have not yet caught up with a world that's far more technologically connected and moving at a much greater pace. So you've got the slow government decision-making and then you have slow delivery on top of that. I mean, my country will make a decision to send stuff and then it won't arrive for six months. So you're compounding this problem of time. I think it hurt the Ukrainians most at the end of last year. I think if they had received all the equipment they needed in the period June to October last year, it would have been a very different Christmas for the Russians. Very different. And they certainly wouldn't have been building these defensive lines where they are now. That will go down in history as one of those great lost opportunities. I think 2024 will be another opportunity for us to train, to equip, the ukrainians while building up western industry to support them over the long term and if we don't take it this war could go for a very very long time indeed
0: so what must the west do in 2024 to help ukraine
1: there's a few things firstly first and foremost every country needs to step up its production of defense material for to replace what they've sent to ukraine but also to have a constant supply of munitions and equipment to ukraine i mean even things like med kits right You know, medkits, boots, rifles, and uh, body armour, those kind of things get destroyed all the time. So those basics need to be constantly replenished. The Ukrainians need about uh, 200,000 to 250,000 shells a month. That is a year is production for everybody at the moment. So we need to step up that level of production. But it's not just to help Ukraine. Like this stepping up of industrial production is a deterrent to Russia doing this elsewhere. It's saying to them. We have the will to push you back and we're willing to make the investments to do that. So that's a big priority. A second priority is obviously training, is you know making sure Ukrainian companies, battalions, brigades are not just well-trained individually on their equipment, but are able to plan and conduct company, battalion, brigade and high-level activities concurrently with great sophistication, with surprise and with great vigour. Uh, That's very difficult to do, even in a professional army. And the Ukrainians have a lot of people that have only been in the army for a few months. So you know, 2024 will be an opportunity for them to do this. And and positional warfare might be what they need for six months to be able to do that. I think the third piece is Western governments agreeing to not just support Ukraine to defend itself, but to help Ukraine win. And they're two very different strategies. We've been helping them tread water at the moment. We need to help them swim and win
0: the race instead. So is the West still afraid of Russia losing? Because we don't know to what could it lead?
1: Yeah, I mean, Russia losing, I guess, is scary for some people, but Ukraine losing is much scarier. If Russia wins, it will reset the norms for the rest of the 21st century for international behaviour. It will reset norms so large authoritarian predators will feel free to prey on their neighbours. And if you're in the Baltics, if you're in Eastern Europe, or if you're in Asia, that is a very, very uncomfortable proposition indeed. So as scary as Russia losing might be, Russia winning is a much, much scarier proposition.
0: Many observers claim that Russian President Vladimir Putin is basically waiting for the results of the US presidential elections next year. And if Donald Trump is back, let's be honest, who knows what can happen? Are you concerned about such a scenario? here? I don't
1: know anyone that's not concerned. I mean, Donald Trump clearly has a greater affinity for the authoritarians than he does the leaders of democracies. He's obviously had a run-in with Vladimir Zelensky in the past. It's a very, very scary future if Donald Trump comes back to the White House, not just for supporting Ukraine. I think NATO will have some significant difficulties. European countries will... I think that uh, the US, as a shining light of democracy, will be greatly diminished as it was during his previous term, but he may be more competent at diminishing that beacon on a hill. I hope democracies are thinking about Plan Bs, because if Donald Trump comes in and panders to the isolationist people in Congress and in his own society... You know, the near and middle term future is looking pretty grim for a lot of democracies
0: in Europe and in Asia. I'm afraid that losing the US support would be fatal for Ukraine. But it's not just America. Maybe you know that the new Slovak government decided to stop the military aid for Ukraine. Of course, this is far, far, far less important than what the US may or may not do. But still, do you think it's really a bad signal if Slovakia, which is NATO and the EU country, acts like this?
1: The Support of every country matters. I mean, there's people in my country that say, hey, we're on the other side of the world. Why does it matter? It's like, because protecting democracy has always mattered to our country. You know, there's 35,000 dead Australians in, in French soil from World War I. And it was even further away in those days. But we felt those values were worth protecting. And they're just as worthy of protecting now. And we send a message that if one democracy is not worth defending, are any of them worth defending? So I think every country's support matters. It doesn't matter whether you give $1 or $1 billion. You know, the ideas of collective defense of the values we agree with is a very important one. So never think, you know, because your support is, say, smaller than the US, it, it doesn't matter. It matters a lot. It matters by itself, and it matters as part of a collective series of nations.
0: Make to wrap it up, and we have been talking about what is happening on the battlefield, but Czech president and former chairman of the NATO military committee, Peter Pavel just said the West must support Ukraine as much as it is needed, but he also mentioned the time is on the Russian side, and that it's possible to expect some peace talks the next year. How do you see this? I don't
1: see any prospect of peace talks at the moment. Putin's not interested in them. He's happy just to wait things out. So there's no prospect from the Russian side, I think. And I think for Zelensky, it's politically impossible for him to do that. He has set these 10 goals for Ukrainian victory that uh, he laid down at the G20, two years running and in other major speeches. And the goals for Ukraine to continue fighting have widespread support because Ukrainians No, if if Russia stops fighting, it goes home. If Ukraine stops fighting, it doesn't exist anymore. And places like Gucha, Irpin and other places have shown Ukrainians what happens if they decide not to fight. So I think they're going to fight on. I don't see any prospects for peace talks in the short term. Maybe 2025, if Ukraine can give the Russians a thrashing. But I just don't see it in the short term.
0: This was another episode of my podcast, The Global Agora. Subscribe, listen on Spotify, Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and on the other platforms. If you enjoy what I do, please support me on Coffee. For the link, see also a description of this episode. Thank you for listening and stay tuned. <music>